clean line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted. Today, we continue our look at the music business, stepping out of the arenas and into the events, the clubs, the bars, and the gigs where most musicians who make a living make their living. Being a working musician means taking responsibility for every facet of your economic supply chain. You are CEO, chief marketer, human resources rep, booker, manager, sound engineer, roadie, transportation manager, and talent. And still, you have to find time to practice, to learn new material, and to keep honing your technical and artistic skills. Now, shut the world down because of a global pandemic and see how that goes. Today, we're talking to two guests, the noted jazz and blues pianist, the backbone of the renowned blues and roots ensemble, Johnny Hoy and the Bluefish. We welcome Jeremy Berlin. And joining us today, fresh off his stellar senior recital as a classical piano major at the Corner School for the Arts and ready to take the music world head on, is Silas Berlin. Jeremy, Silas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ted. Thanks a lot for having us. So, Jeremy, let's start at the beginning. How'd you get into this racket? Uh, I backed into it, really. Um, I had played music all my life. Um, I started at about age six taking piano lessons, as did Silas. And I took classical lessons through high school. And somewhere along that line, I well, from the very beginning, I started to improvise quite a bit, play by ear, even as a kid, and was just figuring things out on my own. Then I started to hear jazz music at about 16 or so, and I was hooked. I started heading in that direction and had the good fortune of meeting up with a few like-minded friends who were not only good friends, but excellent players who were absolutely intent upon playing as much as possible. And we got together and started just trial by fire playing and started to get hired for gigs by the usual um, conduits, which were friends of parents who were throwing a party and thought it would be nice to hire the young boys and uh, onto smaller clubs. And then the wedding industry, I mean, all these things kind of are stepping stones one to the other. And then they all just become part and parcel of the whole package. You end up keeping doing all of these things that you started. Um, and with you know, more and more emphasis on, on just getting work and deciding what work means for you and what you need. I can't hear you. Uh, and Silas, you grew up obviously in a, in a musical home. Um, and you saw the struggles and the challenges of being a working musician that, that your father experienced. What drove you to pursue a career in music? Well, First of all, I don't think I saw any struggle, at least because I grew up with it. It was just a thing. Chris Anzalone, the, the drummer, would come every few weekends and he'd kick my butt and and then he'd leave. And that was kind of my the way I saw the band. It was just my dad's job. Um, but as as was mentioned, I, I started lessons at, uh, around six um, and then um, 
I quit as an early teen uh, and played sports, played basketball. And when my career as a point guard seemed to kind of <laughs> be thwarted by reality, um, that's when it, around, uh, let's see, in, in, in high school, I expressed my interest in jazz uh, and my dad gave me I remember the two CDs he gave me. He gave me Ahmad's Blues, Ahmad Jamal, and Bill Evans' Live at the Village Vanguard, and I would listen to them on my drives to school. And I thought that the Ahmad Jamal record was the coolest thing, and I was very annoyed and bothered with Bill Evans' Live at the Village Vanguard. I didn't get it. <laughs> and, and I don't think I've listened to the Ahmad Jamal record since, and I think I can quote just about everything from that Bill Evans record now. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. So where, so going back to before the pandemic, and we'll start with Jeremy, where did you get work from? How did your work come to you? Sometimes the work was after my pretty naive attempts at soliciting the work. Um, I, I was, I'm not, I was not trained as a marketing person uh, I would, but I am also not afraid to ask people for things or about things or try because you get nowhere if you don't is my thought about that. So a, a lot of, a lot of it came from calling up restaurants, uh, hearing about a place that might be, um, might be presenting jazz on any kind of basis, a regular basis or a weekly basis. And you just try to get in and you realize, especially growing up in the Boston area, um, that there are so many institutions where people just like me are trying so hard to do just what I was doing. Uh, it, it's, it's an incredible, uh, the demand far, the supply far outweighs the demand. Uh, and, and the places know that and they try to, try to really kind of give you as little as they can. Um, by the same token, it's, it's a fertile place to go hear great players all the time. And so you, you just, you, you, it's a network where it's, it's word of mouth. It's, if you get into the wedding business, you're starting to contact caterers and wedding event planners, uh, other musicians, you have to have your ears open. And there are some musicians I wanted to take, I wanted to say something if you didn't, if you don't mind about what you, in your intro, you, you listed off all of the things that a musician uh, often must be. And sure. yes, for me, almost all of those things applied. But for a lot of musicians, because if you are booking gigs, that is a whole level of being a musician that is its own sort of business that isn't, connected to music per se. It's more marketing, business, trying to find work. Um, there are many musicians who either because they're so good that they don't need to be soliciting any work because they're always going to get called by somebody who's got work. And there are many musicians who really don't have the skill set to um, engage in that world and and or the desire to engage in that world. Many of my friends, when I'm a sideman, I realize how, what a relief that is sometimes 
to just you just go play you're not thinking about anything but making music you're not wondering what the next tune is or wondering when you're going to be told when a break is or whether you're too loud or too soft or when the father of the bride's going to come and want to do something you're thinking about 90 things at once yeah. while you're playing music and if there's a problem you point to the guy who's booked the gig and has to bear you know he gets the pain and the glory uh and if things go well they go well for him and if they go badly they go badly for him so um there, there's there's a lot to that list that a lot of people don't participate in and once and when they do sometimes they're thrown to the lions because they have no uh, they had no idea what they were getting into. So I want to come back to that point, but uh, but first, Silas, before the pandemic hit, where were you getting work from? I was actually uh, I had a I had a couple things scheduled right before the pandemic hit. Um, I I was all my work was actually coming from my school. So you know my what. A luxury it's been to to be in school for music and have no responsibilities outside of that plus no possible responsibilities due due to the pandemic other than to, to practice um but i i was most i was getting work from my school interesting yeah giving me work through for the school itself but also in the community so the the school is doing well by doing good um Jeremy, did you did you go to the, did you go to a, a higher education music school? I did not. So, uh, so this is interesting. I I went to music school. Silas went to music school, and it'd be interested to hear Silas's experience and and yours working with musicians who have come out of formal music education programs in in undergraduate. For from my experience, there was one business of music class. And, and it was primarily for people who were going to be gig musicians, mostly jazz, all oriented around, okay, you know, here's how you interface with the union. And that was pretty much it. There, there's, there was at least 30 years ago, there right. was precious little education on how to, how to run your, your artistic brand as a business. I think that, um, I did go, I, I went to a liberal arts institution that had an interesting music department and I had suggested to Silas that he do that as well, not necessarily go to a music school, but go to a, a broader, a school with a broader spectrum that had a strong music um, component. Uh, I did go to the Berkeley School of Music for a semester. Just I took a year off between high school and college and I went for a semester to Berkeley and that was 1980. Um, and at that point, just because I was there for really just for my own, you know, I wasn't getting a degree. I just sort of dabbled in a few different courses, arranging and harmony and ear training and that kind of thing. Um, but there, there wasn't much of a business of music that whole, the whole notion that music was a business hadn't quite caught on yet. The idea that, that you really do have to be, uh, aware of social media and, and marketing and branding and all, all of the things that are now much more um, a matter of course, I think. Um, That's fascinating that, it, I mean, Berkeley is, is one of the preeminent schools in, in the United States. Yep. That, that is not a slouch program. It's very competitive and very difficult to get into. And, and their curriculum is, is considered top notch. But still, 
there, the, I guess the, the community, the industry ignores the business aspect of itself. I don't think that that's so now. I mean, I haven't looked into it. I don't know if you have. Um, well, let's ask Silas, a, a recent, a recent grad of a music program. Let's ask him. How, 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 what was the educational component relating to the business of music? Um, there wasn't much. Um, and what there was, you know, my music pals, um, they're all jazz musicians. Um, and they do, they're, they're excellent players and they do very well, um, around here. And they promote themselves on, on the social media platforms. Um, but my main, I mean, my, my main takeaway from the business aspect of where I went to school was the importance of, we were really told to, you, you, you have to scramble. You have to really, um, do it yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I've, I've, I understand that now. And, and I see a nod of recognition from Jeremy as well. A- absolutely. Um, you have to do it yourself. And, and for me, I was going to just speak to the, I, of, of Silas, the idea or what his experience in working, it, it gives me great pleasure. And I, I also feel it's part of any musician's job you obviously have to look out for yourself, but you also, in order to keep music alive, to beat an old cliche to death, you, you need to keep the musicians going. And I think that the musicians have to help each other. It's not a kind of fend for yourself and, and, and you know, knock other guys out of the way. There are definitely musicians that operate that way. My wish is always to, when I hear there's a new musician on the island, I call them up and I say, hi. I introduce myself and I say, who are you? What are you doing? Not like, who are you? What are you doing? But who are you? What are you doing? And, you know, can we work together? Is there any way that, you know, do you play the music that I play? Can we play music together? Can we be helpful to one another? I have a very good friend and colleague out here with whom I made that call something like 20 years ago. I saw his name in the paper and we're now very good friends and have, have each of us has done the other many, many solids over the years, both as a player, me jumping in with his band, or finding him players, or finding him work, suggesting to a client that is looking for a band that our band is not for you, but I do have a, know a band that would be exactly what you're looking for, and this is the guy you should call. And really the greatest pleasure that I've ever taken, and I, and I still do take and hope to have more of, is giving Silas work. Um, to say, here's a gig that you would be absolutely it, it, that, that would be suitable for you you don't want to give somebody a gig where they're not where it's not suitable because that's that's never worked for anybody and that's another right. major lesson but giving silas work and giving young musicians work and finding the right situations where everybody's able to coexist and keep a scene alive we're talking with working musicians Jeremy and Silas Berlin. If you have questions, tweet them to us at biz disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And if you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments right there on Facebook. Jeremy, you just mentioned something that I think is key to any relationship-driven business, which is kind of the the two guiding principles 
of someone who survives on their relationships is to be generous with your referrals and to be generous with your time and, and relationships. Um, and that feeds into one of the things that, that I want to talk about next. Um, one of the keys to success as a working musician is income, <clears throat> excuse me, income diversity. How do you create diverse income streams? So I'll ask each of you, Jeremy, from the perspective of somebody who's been doing this for quite a while, and Silas, from the perspective of somebody who is emerging and, and is on the hustle and, and has been taught well to just keep grinding at it, how are you going to create and maintain diverse income streams? Uh, are you asking me first? Sure. Okay. Um, maintain diverse income streams. By that, get a real job. Is that what you mean? <laughs> Or, you know, you have a, you have a Monday night gig that's regular. You have a Tuesday night gig that's regular right. on Thursdays. You do. Yeah. That, you, that's how I view, that's how I view diverse income streams because I, I made a decision to really just be a musician and, and not to do musician as a part-time sideline, but to really concentrate. And the way that you create a, a diverse income stream is to be a diverse player, to be a diverse musician. If a church calls me up, and says, can you play a service that is going to involve some hymns and some interludes of your choosing, or which is actually something I do on a fairly regular basis. Uh, if, if I'm called for a memorial service where um, different kinds of music might be required, I might have to read some, and I, and I can't play classical music anymore the way I would like to, uh, but there, there are a few things that I can bring to the table when I have to. Um, I'm pretty versed in blues music and pretty versed in jazz music and can sit down with a singer. I can sit down with a jazz band. I can play modern, <coughs> modern jazz music without sounding like a blues player trying to play jazz. And I can play blues without sounding like a jazz player trying to play, um, blues. And, and that to me, if you, if you had to ask me something that I'm I, proud of is a little strong, but that I that, that I'm happy that I've been able to achieve to the extent that I have. It would be that that I know when to uh, I know what the boundaries are. I feel I know what the boundaries are and have a pretty good sense, idiomatic sense of what is appropriate. And I think that for me that creates a, a diverse income stream because people in different musical worlds will think of me when they need somebody to come and be their pianist. And Silas, what about you? You are, you know, you, you are just starting your, your personal brand as a working musician. What are you doing to, to find work, to establish the relationships and, and create that, that persona? Uh, that will come through teaching for me. Um, I think that, I think that I, I, took more consistent lessons at my age now than, than you did. Than I did? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, we can get to talking about the differences between you and me soon. I think we should. Sure. But, but, you know, so, and so teaching is something that is enforced again and again upon us uh, as music students as um, not only an easy, I don't mean easy, but uh consistent income and also a way to step into the community. Um, and so for me, it's teaching and, and I, I'm 
becoming um, <laughs> probably a less diverse pianist <laughs> um, as I go more and more into this classical music world. I, I for one, um, don't and never, I was never good at playing blues and I never really tried and I think it's because I never really wanted to. Um, so for me, to really answer your question, it's, it'll come through t teaching. Well, and, and teaching is a pretty common way for classical musicians to, to have a, a solid, sustainable income. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's entirely possible that the entire Metropolitan Opera Orchestra would have disbanded to the four corners of the earth in the last year after the Met stopped paying them if they didn't have private students. Um, and, and, and anybody who's had any exposure to classical music training knows, you know, the goal is get the good teacher and, and then it's a check every week and you gotta be there. So, so that provides a, a solid foundation. Um, one of the things that, that you said, Jeremy, I think really has the magic word. And that is that you take pride in, in your approach to what you should be doing and, and how you're doing it. A lot of success in music is based on branding, which at the end of the day is, is as much the musician's reputation as, as anything. How, how have you through your career, and I'll ask Silas to think about how he's going to do this in his career, but how have you, how do you be someone that you're proud of? Well, you are in the interesting position of both interviewing us on this topic in a, in a kind of uh, intellectual business slash business exploration, but you also are, you also contracted me to do a job for you. Yes. Uh, that's, it, it's not exactly how we met, but that's certainly how we got to be, to know each other better. Um, and one of the things that uh, I, I don't really think of myself as having a brand because I think one, you know, I, I said what I was most proud of or most happy with. The thing that I'm least proud of and least happy with is my Luddite lack of technical savvy, my refusal to enter the 21st century as a social media, any kind of social media savvy whatsoever. Um, that's been a big problem for me and especially a problem for the band that I work with because they view me as the person that is that savvy tech, you know, I'm savvy in other ways and they, and, and they have, have the misapprehension that that savviness extends into the world of, of branding and marketing. So, um, but the thing that I do feel is my calling card, if you will, is um, an ability to communicate with a client a... A respect, a respectful, um, a, a respect for the protocol of of doing good business, of calling somebody back, of getting back to somebody, of answering their questions, of trying to be forthright. And um, you know, pe people say to me more frequently than not, "I really appreciate that you called, that you took the time to address our concerns, that you were thoughtful about this, and that you gave us advice or your thoughts." about things that we would not necessarily have thought to ask. So that's a extra musical um, aspect, but in order to be successful musically, it's, it's important to establish yourself as somebody who is, has some, um, 
I don't know, some stature in, in the person's mind just as a human being that they can deal with. And, and then, you know, if, obviously, if you go and, and stink up the joint as a musician, you're not going to get another job. But if you don't, the reason that another piano player might not get that job again is because you have done a good job on the right. social and political front. And, and Silas, what about you? Yeah. Um, for me, I, I, I expressed this just the other day to my dad. I, I want to work as much as I can in an environment where that involves the, uh, a, a, a piano. You know, my school, for various reasons this summer, they have shut down the music building. So my practice access, I, I, I saw that we have a break in a few minutes, so I'll make this quick. But the practice access uh, has been, was does, does not exist anymore. So immediately I thought, how do I fix this? I called places in the, I call event spaces in Seattle and a few have gotten back to me and they've been willing to give me practice space. Um, I, I recently, I called up Steinway. I live 10 minutes walking from Steinway and I said, hello, would you hire me for anything? Um, and Steinway, if you are listening, please, um, it's been so long since since I since my last interview, you know, help me out here. Um, but you have had three interviews, which shows that they were yeah. very interested in him from yeah. calling. So, an aspect of my uh, musicianship is working in, in perhaps working in an environment like Steinway, where I'm just working with pianos and with piano people. Yeah. So. In both cases, though, what you've talked about is a commitment to communication with the people on the other side of the transaction, for lack of a better term. And and in that, it's it's unremarkable, and it's pretty much the same as any other relationship-driven business. It could be being a salesperson, a marketing person, doing what I do for a living, anywhere where you're getting your work based on the decision of somebody who has a lot of choices. If you're not returning the phone call, you're you're, you're just sort of shooting yourself in the foot. So return the phone call. And then if you happen to have a lousy set, then the person is saying, well, that's unfortunate. Not, well, thank God. I don't never want to hire that person again. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, well, I want to take a step back because Silas just touched on this, um, in terms of scoping out options. Um, and after when we come back from the break, we will talk about the 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 juncture between popularity and how you develop and and create popularity on the one hand, and the means by which we do that. You know, musicians often are told, you know, take this job; it'll give you exposure, which is a a nice way of saying, but we're not going to pay you. Um, but but popularity, which brings future future jobs, doesn't necessarily come only from exposure. So, Jeremy, uh, let's let's dive into this with uh, with about a minute. You know, how do you gauge popularity of of you as an artist, of your ensembles as an artist? How do you create and maintain it beyond returning the phone call, beyond calling the restaurant? Sure. Um, A lot of it has to do with just judging whether a gig is going to be worthwhile for you in a long run rather than a short term windfall. Um, 
we have a little, I'll come back to this after the break, but we have a fun little thing where we say, we, we'll feed you and you'll get great exposure. So we say, oh, we're getting exposure to food. <laughs> well, and on that note, we're talking with working musicians Jeremy Berlin and Silas Berlin on the reality of the music business from the perspective of the working musician. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. Stick around while we take a short break for some messages from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth. We've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success. No matter the size or complexity of the case, our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product. We know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at GavinSolmanese.com or call us at 302-655-8997. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Business Disrupted. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted, B-I-Z, disrupted, or email them to comments at disrupted.business. And if you're joining the show on Facebook Live, put your questions in the comments or just say hello. We're talking about the music industry from the inside. A 2018 report indicates that median income for American professional musicians is $35,000 a year. And that includes income from music and non-music sources. Meanwhile, musicians struggle with mental health and substance addiction problems in greater number than the general population. In the United Kingdom, musicians lost two-thirds of their income in 2020 because of the pandemic. Few musicians do well, most struggle to make ends meet, and the key differentiation is popularity. Musicians who become popular do better, but popular doesn't necessarily mean billboards and music videos. It means building a network, established relationships, 
and, and reputation. Before the break, Jeremy, you were talking about how you, uh, how, how you manage your brand and how you manage your relationships that, that, that really provide that level of baseline work. Well, we live, I live and work on Martha's Vineyard, um, and have for 35 years. I mean, full time, I've lived here full time for something over 20 years, but have been working primarily based on Martha's Vineyard for 35 years. And in a way, it's the antithesis to what most musicians, uh, the, the, the kind of, um, paradigm in which most musicians live, where you have to go out on the road to go find your audience. You have to leave and, and support yourself by, if you're making a record, you have to go support the record and tour and get in a van. And it's, it's not that we don't have to do that, but you can get away for a good six months of the year living here because the people come to you. Um, the island provides so much, uh, so many sources of, of gigs and, and possibilities for musicians. The ones, again, that, as you said, have worked hard to hone their craft and to, you know, there, there have been many bands that have come and gone, and I've been in a band here that has, I and the leader of the band have been together for nearly 30 years, um, for better and for worse. And, and it's, it's a tough thing to be, be in a band for a long time. But a lot of that is to be loyal to your fans uh, you expect them to be loyal to you, and we've been at it so long that we've seen generations grow up, leave us, and their kids come through, and they leave us, and then they kind of return to us as grandparents, so our crowd is now officially old. Um, <laughs> and uh, But because we aren't, we, we have... There, there's some kind of inconveniences like family and and your house and your 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 spouse and and things like that that get in the way of a musician who goes on the road and I think a lot of the things that you were speaking to about the trials and tribulations and abuses and problems that musicians have is that there is it, it, it's such a um, unstable existence not only is for most musicians the money an issue but any kind of stability in in relationships where you're everyone else is kind of abiding by a, a certain general sort of a schedule and you are on the opposite one. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a, a quick, if I may, a quick musician joke where the musician invites all their friends for uh, a barbecue on Wednesday afternoon after Labor Day. And uh, everybody just calls them and says, what are you crazy? We're working. And uh, the musician says, yep, you are, aren't you? You know, every Saturday barbecue that's happened in the last 20 years, I've not been able to attend because I'm working. It's just a backwards schedule. And um, <laughs> Well, and, and so that, that raises, you, you mentioned that you work and live on Martha's Vineyard, um, which is a seasonally centered tourist economy. And, and there, is, I, I, there is an entire life structure that happens when you live and work in a seasonally centered tourist economy. So, you know, you, you sort of go into the equation realizing that there's a vast amount of the year where there's no one there. Right. So how, how has working in a seasonally concentrated tourist economy affected how you do your work? And Silas, I'm going to ask you how being exposed to that type of economic model has prepared you for for kind of life as a as a working musician 
Jeremy, go ahead. Okay. Um, well, a couple of things. For one thing, we have had to, and I, and I, I feel like I personally had something to do with this. I was mentioning before that our crowd was getting older, and uh, along with our crowd getting older, we are getting older. We musicians are getting older, our, my bunch of friends. And the idea of a gig starting at 10 p.m. and ending at 1 or 2 a.m. Uh, has become absolutely absurd to most people. Most people that I know are in bed long before 10, or hope to be in bed long before 10. So we actually started to try to change the entire culture of when gigs happen here. And it was a huge shift and one that worked well for everybody and kept us going in those months where the people disappeared. But there's a whole community of people who living here who were grateful to have us play, as you know, from 7.30 to 9.30 instead of from 10 to 12. We had to stop at Halloween when it was the 10 to 12 hours because after that, the place was just tumbleweeds. Yeah. And, uh, but once we went to the bar owners and said, look, we're seeing this happen in other places, it makes total sense. They balked a little at it at first, but then it's a win-win for everyone, for them, for us, for the, for the people that are coming, for the bars, for the bands, and for the audience. And, and during the, the busy season, if you don't want to play 10 to 12 or 10 to 1, there's someone else who will. Absolutely. Who is looking for the initial exposure. And, and so this, right, and, and then, yeah, there, you can, there'll always be somebody that wants to play uh, and, and be very adamant and shrill about it, too, sometimes. I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the, you, you have to, you have to be the squeaky wheel sometimes. Um, but the other thing, other part of that is that, yes, in fact, we do have to be more like other bands for that other six months. We leave the island every weekend. We get in our van and go off to some place and play a gig and you're there in the middle of the night somewhere else and having to sleep somewhere else and take the boat back the next day and then sometimes get on the boat that second night and leave again. Yeah. Uh, or do a whole weekend where you've got, you know, that was my job as the booking person is to make sure that the Friday night and the Saturday night aligned in some way that made sense, that kept us going for the whole weekend, that one gig paid well enough to subsidize the travel expenses. I mean, all, all of these things are part and parcel of figuring out how to make it work, uh, it, why you leave, if it's worthwhile, if it's, you know. Yeah. Wait, Silas, how, how has exposure to this type of economy affected kind of how you're going to interface with, with your economic world? Sure. Um, I'm 23 and I am sure that I wouldn't be able to make it on Martha's Vineyard right now, doing what I do and what I aspire to do, that doesn't exist for me on the island. It might exist once I've made it, um, but you know there is no um, there's no venue that offers consistent classical music concerts on the vineyard. Uh, that world doesn't really exist. There are a handful of teachers on the island, and I think for me to butt in in that um, economy right now would, would not work for me. Uh, and so you don't even get to the conversation that inevitably arises when talking about uh, living and working in a tourist economy, the, the issue of housing. 
you, you don't you don't even get to that part of the conversation. You you just view that as there being no room for the type of musician that you are. Uh, well, uh, no room. I mean, that's that, yes, but I think that's a little harsh to put it that way. I, I just I think. I, um, but sure, housing. I mean, I have the luxury of growing up on Martha's Vineyard. I got a, you know I I live there cost free. So right. So, but but were that but if that were not the case, uh, right? Then no, no, absolutely no chance. Yeah. there's no chance I would be able to, to to do it right now. Right now, the 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 economy here has made it that it, it's it's a more like an old world situation where generations are moving back in together. All the vineyard kids are moving in with their parents again because mm. there's no possibility of them living anywhere else. Yeah, we uh, on a, on a show a few weeks ago we we discussed some of the issues relating to Martha's Vineyard housing, but you know the fact that it is exponentially greater than the national average, while income is not, creates exactly the situation you're describing. Right. Stepping away from kind of gig related questions and focusing on musician related questions, uh, I want to I want to talk about what each of you kind of bring to your experience uh, and and I'll ask each of you this question what are the differences between the two of you Jeremy what are the differences between you and Silas um I think that Silas has an enormous I, I think that his work ethic as a player is really strong much stronger than mine has ever been um his passion for his his knowledge that without that work ethic you get nowhere in the music that he's playing serves him well, um, and it's I always say that the better a musician gets, the more he knows how little he knows. That that you become more humble. You should become more humble the further along you get in your field because you just realize that you're constantly chasing the unattainable, and there's always somebody out there who's such a better proponent of what you're doing than you are um, and that there's so much work that it takes to get there and one can be lulled into a sense of um, I don't know stasis or, or or just feeling that you're adequate enough to get by especially in a place with limited numbers of people around um, I think Silas doesn't believe that for a second I think he works really hard uh, because he he really knows that that's what it's going to take him to be what he you know to, to to kind of realize some ambition. But Silas is also very very musical, and he was from a, when he was a little boy and he was playing. You could tell right away that he understood innately um, the music, not just the notes on the paper, but the music that they represented. And you go to these recitals of lots of little kids playing the same 30-second piece, and it's quite remarkable the diversity of interpretation that you will hear from the 30 seconds. And you will hear the kids that are by rote playing the, the notes that are on the paper, and you will hear the kids that have internalized the music and are expressing it. Um, mm -hmm. And Silas had that, and my musician friends were kind of slack-jawed at his musicality from the time he was little. So when he stopped playing, I was unhappy but reassured by everyone, oh, the music is in him. It's going to come back out again. And 
and it did. He, he, he came back. I think that one of the main differences between Silas and me is that I, I, I think am a better, more, or I, I, not better, better is not the right word, but I, I have an easier time playing by ear than he does. Um, that has always been something that I try to do all the time, and I think it's, it's less easy for him to think that way, to, to feel music that way. That's, Silas, do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely, to an extent. Um, well, may, I, may, I, may I? Please, yeah, I want to hear, what, what do you yeah. think the differences between the two of you are? Yeah, uh, I, for me, the playing the piano, it's an incredibly labor-intensive process, just full body. I mean, I, you know, I, um, I, this year, I've been practicing five to six hours a day, sometimes more, and that hurts. <laughs> Um, but I think that I have the luxury of looking because of, um, my dad and the music that he exposed me to, I have the luxury of looking at music through both a, uh, kind of chilled out, relaxed jazz perspective and also a hardcore classical angle. And I, that is a great benefit. It's, I, I have learned that that's a great benefit because of some conversations and, uh, that I've had with fellow students analyzing some music together. Um, it is it is a narrow, I think it's a narrow vision to look at music through a classical angle. It's incredibly beneficial to have the wider um, jazz perspective on music uh. interesting so jeremy you you said something earlier that i want to want to drill down drill down on a bit you said that when there you had some sadness when silas started really playing and and your musician friends kind of convinced you he's got the music in him it's going to come out why no i think you misunderstood i my okay. sadness was when he quit Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Um, thank thank and, you. That and, makes uh, a lot more sense. Yeah. No, okay. I, 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 when he came back to it, I was thrilled. And he, he came back as somebody who was interested in jazz and became, as he mentioned, he became somewhat obsessed with Bill Evans and got a real, very sophisticated understanding, I think, of, of harmonies and appreciation for harmonies and voicings and the kind of unbelievable... and. Um, textures that Bill Evans created and which he, Silas and I will often just talk in amazement about how that that is found in classical music. You can hear chords and harmonies and progressions and ideas that clearly struck Bill Evans and informed his playing. Um, as you know, to, so I, I think the jazz comes from many different sources and um, you listen to old country music and and resolutions uh cadences of in 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 Bach and baroque music that somehow it would maybe a shift of a note or something would sound like something that Dr. John would resolve his right. New Orleans piano song with uh and and so there's an incredible connection and and I think Silas is absolutely right that you, that you have to look through many different lenses and prisms to you know one music informs the other so so much and and um i i you know i wish 
I, I think that the Silas is one of the more stubborn people I know, which I admire because he's sticking to what he wants to do. But my my wish to say, why don't you just play this Hound Dog Taylor tune as just one chord for a half an hour, you know, get comfortable doing that, you know, because I've had to do that. I, I, when I came to playing blues, I wasn't really very comfortable with the idea of how stripped down it was, how essential it was. And, and um, I also think that playing one chord, two chord, three chord music allows you to work. Um, as Silas said, there's a handful of concerts. There's one chamber music society here that plays for two months, once a week. Um, and then maybe a couple of library concerts over the course of the winter. Um, and that's it. So unless he became the teacher at the high school, the music teacher at the high school, um, where he would be part of the community and have to do with music all the time and be able to play in some capacity, it's, it's a tough call to say the vineyard has a, a place for somebody with Silas's aspirations right now. The vineyard, I, I think, too, it's... Maybe I wouldn't have wanted to quit if there was more of a scene, if there was more people more young kids playing music. I mean, none of my friends that I grew up with took piano lessons. And so I think the, um, there, there's, there's not like a foundational community for young kids to be really interested in music from the beginning on the vineyard. Well, that, that raises an interesting point. So, um, you know, I grew up in, in, Philadelphia in, in a city that had a public school system that at the time had enough money to be able to let students use instruments because there was no earthly way that, you know, my parents were ever affording a bassoon, which is not an inexpensive wind instrument. So I had the ability to have an instrument and kids had the ability to have instruments and take lessons for free and learn and get to at least a baseline level of, of competence as a, as a musician before having to go elsewhere and, and invest money. Does that do, do do at least the instruments? Is there a music program in the schools on Martha's Vineyard that kids can avail themselves of? Yes, good. There is. It's 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 not. I think that there's there's an odd uh, dichotomy between the fact that th there is a fairly limited, fairly limited resources in that regard. There are some stringed instruments that people can get, and now they have them at libraries. There's some wind instruments, but there's not, there are not very many teachers who, outside of a few piano teachers, the string teachers, for example, are few and far between. Um, wind teachers, there, I think maybe now they're the guy who's at the high school is a wind, is a trumpet player, so, you know. But there's just, you never know what you're going to find. There's not that kind of set. Um, you know, across the board availability. The, 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 the dichotomy that I speak of, though, is the fact that there are so many musicians on the island and a lot of grown-up musicians who have had kids. Uh, I'm, I'm one of them whose, whose progeny have, you know, become musicians and will be musicians and have been musicians. So there's, there's a lot of sort of history and a concentration of, of people who are very devoted to music here, and you would think and hope that it would find its way into the schools, but... Of course, they're the first ones to get the funding cut. Right, right. One of the keys to success in, in any relationship business, in any business where you're basically selling yourself, one of the keys to success in sales, frankly, is attitude. 
Um, Silas, I'll ask you first, how are you managing your, your attitude as you start out? Yeah, that's, uh, let's see, I graduated on Saturday and since then I've been really realizing the importance I've, I've, it's become something I've been so much more conscious of actually since our last day of school on, on the seventh, um, of the importance of emailing right back, not being afraid to call. Um, so I, I mean, my, I actually, this is a bit tangential. Um, but my, uh, circle of people are musical theater folks and their whole philosophy is, a much happier one than I've, than I've known. And so, uh, just being a personable, um, amicable human being is, is what I'm trying to do. That's I, I don't know if music theater students have changed at all in the last 30 years, but in my time, the, the annoying thing was that they would just frequently break out into song for no reason. No apparent reason. It's annoying. <laughs> Jeremy, I want to come at this question from, from the standpoint of your experience. What do you wish you knew about attitude when you were in your early twenties that you know now? Um, that the idea that somehow you are entitled to the job that is presented. You, you have no idea. You just assume that you're going to get a job. And that you assume that you're going to get work, and I think my attitude now is is much more one where I'm I'm more I don't know if fatalistic is the word, but I'm I'm more understanding that I'm going to make my best pitch, and I can only do it within the confines and structures that I know, and and hope that I'm the man for the job. Yep. And so my attitude is it it, it actually helps me. Um, not try to be everything to everybody and assume that I'm going to get something, but, you know, work on whatever tools I have to, to do the best I can to acquire work and to keep myself in a position where I'm worthy of the work that I'm trying to acquire. Okay. Well, I think that's going to be a wrap. Jeremy and Silas, thank you so much for joining us today. The renowned jazz pianist Jeremy Berlin makes his home in Massachusetts, where he is the keyboardist and booking agent for the renowned blues and roots combo Johnny Hoy and the Bluefish, and he keeps a steady stream of jazz gigs to keep nimble. Silas Berlin makes his home in the Pacific Northwest and makes his living as a working and teaching pianist. We'll post links to websites and social media on the show's website under this episode's notes. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Kara Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World Talk Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.